You're listening to Return Again, where we look at Aliyah through the lens of Olim, who have lived in Israel long enough to have perspective. I'm Goel Jasper, and my guest today is David Lang. David grew up in Perth, Australia. Assuming his life's work would be dedicated to building wealth and a family in Australia. In high school, he had some experiences that would nudge him in the direction of Israel, but it was meeting his future wife, Erica, later Ahava Emunah, Zichonavi Bracha, that sealed the deal for a future in Israel and transformed both his life and his life priorities. I recently visited David, also known for years as Ozzy Dave of the Israeli Cool blog, in his Beit Shemesh home, where we had a far-ranging discussion about his aliyah, the cancer battle his wife waged with him by her side, career aspirations in Israel, raising kids, and, of course, his Israel advocacy through his blog. So, with no further ado, here's David Lang, returning again. Thank you for allowing me into your home to, uh, to interview you for Return Again. Thanks for the honor of interviewing me. <laughs> um, David, you know, for years, you, uh, you were involved in Israel advocacy in a pretty secretive way. We'll get to that later on, but um, now it's sort of like uh, the, the, the rabbit is out of the hat and, uh, and uh, everyone knows uh, who you are at this point, and I really appreciate you giving me some of your time. But let's, let's go back. Let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Australia, in Perth, correct? Correct. Okay. And I have to ask first, like, what was it like growing up in Perth? And talk, if you can, uh, about what, it, what Aliyah was in your mind as a child, or, you know, when was the first time you really thought about the concept of Aliyah? Not necessarily coming here, but, like, had heard about other people doing it or whatever. So living in Perth was idyllic. Really? In the sense of it's such an easy lifestyle. Um, just growing up quite relaxed. You know, the stereotype of Australians being relaxed or Australia being a relaxed place. G'day, mate. No worries, mate. <laughs> it's really true for the most part. Not, not and, these days so much. Well, now with, yeah, with the lockdown, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, a, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah, it's things that, the whole world is changing. Right. We can get but traditionally, you're But saying. traditionally, you know, growing up, it was very relaxed, quiet. And Perth is on the West Coast, Melbourne and Sydney on the East Coast. And I think there is a generalization you can make in the world, even in America, to say, that people on the West Coast seem to be more relaxed. And I think it has to do with the beach lifestyle. It's very much a beach lifestyle, the weather, gorgeous weather. And it really, I think, impacts on the way people are. So for the most wow. part, yes. That's fascinating. I, I've, I've, I've even the West Coast of Israel. This, yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> it's like my theory. I'm glad you seem to think there's some, yeah, I see that. Then some credence to this theory. But I do believe that the West Coast and the East Coast, there are differences also in the way people uh, act and the level of, uh, I was going to say complacency, but that's not the right word, how, how relaxed people are in, yeah. in general. But Bikitsu, um so it was great. So you could get to why did you make Aliyah? I guess we'll get to that a bit later. Yeah, yeah. That's but good growing point. up just as, and I didn't come from a religious family. Okay. Um, I went to a Jewish day school. It was, it's called Carmel School in, in Perth. Um, and at the time, let's say it's an orthodox school in the ethos, but I'd say 99.9% of the students didn't come from orthodox or observant homes. It was, sure. It was where your parents sent you so you would maintain your Judaism and not marry out. Right. That Com- was like the, the, the definition of being Jewish. For, and I know I'm generalizing, but this is just how I conceptualize it. Back then, growing up as a child was you have Seder, you light candles, do Kiddush on Friday night. Um, before going out, <laughs> right, um, and 
not don't marry out. These were the main things that were instilled in me. Now I can sort of integrate my answer into the next part of your question, which is when did you first find out about Aliyah? It's hard to pinpoint exactly, but I do have this sense of Israel always being important in the house. That was another part of my identity. Hmm. My parents spoke about Israel. We'd never visited Israel, but we had books and, and books about Israel. I remember vaguely a picture book, uh, just p- photos of Israel. It, right. it looks like, if I remember correctly, it was probably from about the 60s or 70s. Yeah. I remember seeing camels and, you know, all the stereotypes about Israel. Right. Uh, so when I did finally come to Israel for the first time, which I guess we'll get to as well later on, um, it surprised me by its modernity because I had a very kind of crude uh, yeah. idea of Israel. Right. It was, was a desert with camels. Right, that picture book from the, from yeah, the 60s. That, that, yes. Then growing up, so, so again, I had a very Zionist household without actually having ever been to Israel. I joined youth groups before I was a teenager, so Habonim, if you're familiar yeah, yeah, with Habonim. Sure, so sure. I, was, I tried Habonim for a while. It's like the secular Zionist It was a secular Zionist. So I was very much a secular Zionist at the time. Um, right. So, that, that, so it's hard to pinpoint exactly when, but it, it was instilled in me, I guess, from a very early age. The idea of Israel, but not, and, and I guess Habonim, without remembering exactly any conversations we had, it was all about Aliyah. But it was very remote for me at the time. I never really considered it until much later. So, so Perth had a pretty formalized Israel infrastructure, I guess. If, if it was sophisticated enough to have Habon, a Habonim chapter, I imagine it had B'nai Akiva as well. Yes, they have B'nai Akiva. So, so did you hear of other people from your community moving to Israel and things like that? Back in the day, there were definitely, but there was sort of more people that had gone and never come back. They sort of disappeared into the, <laughs> into, into the distance. No, there were some people that I guess would come to my synagogue and they'd been living in Israel, maybe visit. I do remember another important point. It wasn't just the youth groups, but our Hebrew teachers at the school, normally they would be on shlichut. That'd be actual right. Israelis sure, that had sure. come. So obviously that also influenced us. You'd learn about, we were learning Hebrew at school, not on a very deep level, as I'll learn later when I made Aliyah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so the, it, was, it was there. So the infrastructure was the shlichut. Uh, obviously Habonim had a shaliach and B'nai Kiva had a shaliach. Right. Um, so there were people there, but it, uh, I don't know how, you know, again, I'm going back to my childhood. I'm 47 years of age. You didn't ask, politely so, <laughs> but I can volunteer that information. And so I don't know how, let's say, uh, sophisticated infrastructure was, but it was definitely there and there were people making Aliyah. Another thing I remember, sorry, was that we had at school Zionist seminar camps. What does where that mean? Where a Zionist seminar camp, I, I'm not sure who organized it, but right. it was definitely a Dati camp. There were, there were definitely Dutty people that came. I don't know if they were B'nai Akiva or Zionist organization or, or just, I don't know exactly. But there were, uh, again, uh, Madrichim and Madrichot that came from Israel and we spent like a week. Like doing in, Israel in the, things? In the bush or right. and, yeah, like a camp, but it was all about Israel. Yeah. So we also had those around, let's say, 14, 15, 16. And then another uh, group that would come was Counterpoint. That were Yeshiva University. Have you heard of Counterpoint? Sure. We definitely know people. Yeah, yeah. We have mutual friends, I'm sure. Right. That um, I could give some shout-outs, but maybe I won't, <laughs> uh, if you, unless you want. Um, Counterpoint, there were Yeshiva University students that would come. And that was more religiously uh, geared right. towards be, being... And that would, uh, let's say, um, 
come back to my life later on. And that's part of my Aliyah story, actually. Okay. Uh, these camps and, and the impact they had on me. But, of course, because Aliyah is so integral to Judaism, Zionism is so integral to Judaism, of course, that was part of those camps as well. Right. It wasn't just right. about the observance in the sense of Shabbat and Kashrut and these sorts of things, but it was all about Israel as well. I want to go back to the Habonim group. Yes. What kinds of things did you do? Do you remember what was going on there? Was it a Shabbat thing? Was it a weeknight thing? I, I, I guess I can answer this question because I wasn't there long enough to do things that I might not be able to answer on this particular podcast. <laughs> because I left pretty... I wasn't there for very long. I think yeah. I was only there when I was 12 or something. I didn't continue with Hubble. Okay. okay. But, you know, you play games. Uh, there were a lot of game playing because I was only 12. Right. And activities to do with Israel in the fun sense. I don't really remember too many specifics but you know i do remember let's say was it mifkad where you you know the roll call you do you know so they were introducing hebrew words into things okay and uh it had let's say they of... had events certain events surrounding israel maybe right. I'm, I'm sure there was a yom Atzimut, you know the, on yeah. yom Atzimut, they did stuff again i don't remember all the specifics but it introduced me more to israel and you meet you know there was a you know israeli um i guess shaliach who was very involved right so, so, so of the three, if we think of like Habonim yeah. and the Zionist seminar camp yeah. and Counterpoint, did any of them build your connection particularly strongly in terms of Israel? Um, what role did they play in, in your worldview taking shape over time? Well, that's such a good question because everything is sort of, let's say, melded together. I think they yeah. all played a part. Habonim probably the least. Okay. Because at the end of the day, when I did finally come to Israel, it was in a very religious sense. Although I did initially plan to come to Israel on that kind of Habonim program. So right. I guess it was still there. Okay. But that's not what actually eventuated. Because my Aliyah story is intertwined with my return, as it were, to Judaism, to Jewish practice. When I say return to Jewish practice, I just mentioned I never grew up religious. Right. But we were all right. at Hasinai. Sure, of course. So that's what I mean by return to religious practice. Yeah, clear. Um, but I definitely wanted to spend a year in Israel as a gap year. And that those, the Habonim and the Zionist seminar camps, and of course my Zionism at home, right. all obviously played a part in me wanting to go to Israel. And of course, there's the, I wouldn't say peer pressure, but influenced by your peers, but you hear of friends that are going to Israel for a year. And that obviously plays a part as well. So your first time in Israel was when? 1993. So I actually graduated from high school in 1991, and I really desperately wanted to take a year off. I was a very good student. Oh, okay. But when I, I'm not saying that immodestly. My, my point is I studied hard, so it was more work and not much play right. when I was in school. Because I was very ambitious and goal-oriented. I don't, so know, I I don't to, know what that's like. <laughs> well, this, this <laughs> Not the part yeah, for that, yeah. <laughs> um, so I wanted to come to Israel, and I was thinking more of a kibbutz, kind of experience because right. that, you know my friends were doing that sort of thing yeah and my parents they wanted me to continue let's say on the trajectory of university and sure. studies you know i'd already gotten into you know law school and 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 finally i went towards a let's say a law degree and a finance degree the uh, in, in parallel and they basically convinced me instead of going away for a year for a gap year 
to go to a counterpoint, what was a reverse counterpoint camp. What do I mean by that? Counterpoint where they came to Australia and you had a weak camp. Here, for the very first time, it was called Counterpoint America, and um, these Yeshiva University people were going to bring out four people, four students from Carmel, to Yeshiva University for, I think it was about five or six weeks. This was at the beginning of 1992. My parents were encouraging me to do that, not because they wanted wow. me to become religious. They, for the opposite reason, they actually thought there was no chance I would become religious. It would have, and, and, and the benefit would be that I would, from their point of view, would be that I only would take off six weeks or so and then start university. Right. And they convinced me, and I do remember at the time thinking as part of my considerations is, okay, it could be fun to visit America, but I didn't have any let's say, expectations that anything religious would rub off on me. I wasn't at all in that headspace. Right. So there's, there's a lot going on yes, in, that, in that little statement you made there. Because can I assume that, that growing up in Perth, um, you were, you, you were a part of a non-observant, non-Torah-observant family, Correct. but a, a family that, that believed that if you're going to observe, orthodoxy is the way to go? Or not necessarily. No. So, so it's fascinating, maybe you could talk about this a little bit, that your parents would be so into the idea of you going on this Yeshiva University program, sending you away for six weeks. Okay, I understand. Like, they're thinking, oh, well, you know, six weeks versus a whole year, yes. that's a pretty good deal yeah. time-wise. But it's six, year, six weeks of, of orthodoxy. So I guess that says a lot about who your parents are. I mean, look, I love my parents, um, but I think in this particular case, knowing me at the time, they thought there's no chance David's going to become religious. <laughs> I was really very far from it, although I consider yeah. myself spiritual and I did sure. say my own prayers before going to bed. And I, right. I remember I've always believed in God. Yeah. But from a religious observance point of view, I guess there was a stigma attached to being religious back in Perth. There weren't that many religious people. And I guess some just didn't seem... I, I didn't really understand what it meant to be religious. I had an impression mm. of what it meant to be observant, but it was right. more all the negative connotations, restricting yourself and yeah. not doing things. And what this Yeshiva University experience did more than anything, it wasn't so much the, the, the token of the content. Yeah, there was a bit of that, but I saw for the first time, I know it's going to sound weird because I live in this community now. Yeah. I've been living like this, this lifestyle for 20, almost 30 years. But at the time, it was mind-blowing revelations for me to see people like us, meaning... Living in the modern world, doing everything, but having this, it was it was more it wasn't a subtraction, it was an addition to your life, right. the spiritual component, and that wasn't at all my conception of what Judaism was. I thought you're you're missing out on things. You can't do you know it's like the Big Lebowski. Somewhere I won't quote that in full. <laughs> you have to beat me out. But you know what I'm saying. That was actually in a sense what I thought of Judaism, what you can't right, do. Right. And when I went on this program and I met these people and they were cool, cool like me. We could talk about sports and all the sort of modern, the same music, you know, everything. But they had this spiritual component and it really had an effect on me, which was not at all anticipated. You know, man plans, God laughs. Yeah. And this is exactly, this was meant to be, of course. And that really changed my life. So I got back to Perth, did a year of university. But like, you know, the, <laughs> when people go to university, that's normally when they let their hair down. Right. It had a bit of a reverse effect on me at that at that time at least. So I would 
Yeah, I mean, part of the time I'd be in the in the pub, the bar, you know, of course, I was still enjoying myself a bit. But then, yeah. like, during lunchtime, so I remember being in the library and I brought, like, some Sfarim that I had and would learn about the, you know, I, I really was trying to soak up information about Judaism. I really felt this pull. Right. Now, at the time, I hadn't necessarily thought about Aliyah, but during the course of that year at university, it wasn't enough for me. I said, listen, I can't continue like this. You know, I wasn't fully observant at the time. I, I was starting to maybe keep Shabbat once in a while just to try it out. It was hard being in the house that wasn't keeping Shabbat when you're the only person keeping Shabbat. Right. So I tried it out a little bit. But I said, listen, is this really the path I want to be on? Maybe Counterpoint America was an idealization of what it's really like. Now, Tuckless, down to earth, I, I need to know more about Judaism. I don't know enough. You know, in six weeks, I learn bits and pieces and I see people and it seems great. But so I decided at that time that I needed to come to, I was going to come to Israel for a year, but instead of the secular kibbutz, I was going yeah. to come to Yeshiva. I'd never been to Yeshiva before. I'd never learned that much before. Right. But I knew if I'm going to make a life-changing decision, it can't be on the basis just of a six-week uh, tour of, you know, and seeing the ice hockey and all right. the good stuff. Right. I need to really understand more about Judaism. And so let's say my parents' plan backfired. They should definitely get credit still for, from, <laughs> you know, I don't want to paint them as uh, totally having ulterior motives, but, uh, you know, they... Things were meant to, to play out this way. And so, yeah, I did a year of Yeshiva and I loved it. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You, you think I'm going to let you get away with one no, line no, about no, it? No, no, I'm not. There's no one-liners. <laughs> so, you're, you're sitting there in Perth and you're saying to yourself, I got to go to Yeshiva. Yeah. So, how do you even, back then, right, how do you even start the process in an environment where no one else is doing this? Yeah. So, some of the, um, I was in touch with some of the counterpoint Madrikim and Madrichot, and uh, they were recommending... From the States. Yeah. And they, mo for the most part, recommended what was called Brovinders. I don't know if it's right. still called Brovinders in Afrat. Uh, Hamivta, Yeshiva yeah, Hamivta, Rabbi Riskin and Rabbi Brovind at the time. Mm -hmm. Sure. All roads led to there, so it was sort of an easy decision. That's where I had went. to go there, and that's where I went. Right. And, yeah, so I had a support network amongst them. I wasn't, let's say, receiving a huge amount of support from my parents. Right. And Which is understandable, of course. I mean, it's... It, they're worried about me and what will be, and they're gonna, you're going to take off a year of university. I, you know, I, I'm a parent, and I've been a parent for a long time now, so I understand. I'm, maybe I was more critical of them back in the time when right. you're, you're more sort of a... When you think so you know more everything. More self-centered, you think you know everything. <laughs> but now I understand, you know, they just want what's best for me and stability, and they're not, you know, you, they might, might have heard stories of people going a bit off the deep end, which can sure. definitely happen. Sure. But thankfully I didn't, and it was life-changing. It you're, sowed the seeds for me, not just in terms of my religious observance, but Israel. Do you remember landing in Israel for the first time? Yeah, I do. Yes. Talk about that. Well, well, people clapping, and that was like, wow. You mean you're the saying when the plane time, landed yeah, the plane itself? They still know, do it. No, I know they still they do still it. They still do it. But that was the it's first beautiful. impression. It's so beautiful, and it always, let's say, makes me emotional. I, I join in on, in the clapping. Um, <laughs> Wait, can we, can we stay with this for a second? Yes. Because I just traveled to the States... Uh, on business, landed in New York, no clapping, flew to Boston, no clapping, back to New York, no clapping, back to Israel, <laughs> clapping. Yeah. There's nowhere else in the world where that it's happens. It's incredible. There's just so much brotherhood. And, you know, for all the, 
the things that we can sometimes focus on about living in Israel, and I guess we'll get to that too, which is a bit harder, or maybe even with some Israeli cultural aspects being a bit tougher than what we're used to. Right. This is beautiful. The brotherhood, <laughs> um, everyone having your back. Beautiful, love yeah. it, and that's so that. But I actually should take a step back because okay. this story doesn't just start with the clapping. Okay. For some reason, I booked Egypt Air to get to Israel. <laughs> okay. And I remember getting to Egypt. It was a first of all, yes, I got I got to Egypt, and they took away my passport. Right. I guess because I'm on the way to Israel, and I don't know if it was for my safety or not, but I was scared, very scared. Like, what's going on? <laughs> oh, first of all, I think I might have gone to Dubai, stopped off in Dubai or someplace like that, or Bahrain, or I, I don't remember. It was one of those places, obviously, sure. before, well before the Abraham Accords. Yeah, yeah, well this before. This is the 1993. Yeah. And I, so there, and I befriended some guy on the plane, some Arab guy, and we were talking. But then I get to Egypt, and they, they confisc- it looked like they were confiscating, and I was stuck in the airport. And of course, they did return it, but I was already, I got to Israel. Okay, the clapping was great, but I got to Israel quite frazzled. Sure. I guess is the word. Yeah. A bit disoriented. Yeah, unsettled. Discombob- right. Is that the word? Discombob- discombobulated. Yeah. yeah, I shouldn't have gone for that word. It was too <laughs> ambitious. Uh, but, you know, disoriented. And so I wasn't in the best mood. And okay. it was a bit overwhelming. I get to the airport. Where was I staying? I think I was staying with one of the counterpoint America Madrichim that was at, what's that? American Yeshiva and Bait Vagan. BMT? Yeah, it might have been that one. Yeah. It might have been BMT, yeah. Yeah. So just stayed the night there. And then I end up turning up at a frat. And I don't remember exactly what happened, whether there was a miscommunication. But I get there and they weren't expecting me at that moment. So I, right. I had to sleep on the floor of some Talmudim's dorm. But they right. weren't there at the time. And then they got there when I was sleeping. And they were like surprised. So everything Who is this very, guy? Yeah, exactly. It was an inauspicious <laughs> start. It did not start off well. Yeah. It wasn't like, boom, wow, everything's great. I really, it was a culture shock. And but I, I stuck it through, and you, you slowly, remember you remember thinking, "Wow, I've what, have gotta, I, what have I done?" You, yeah, you do. Yeah, 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 for sure. Because you know the whole Egypt experience yeah. and the floor, the floor experience. <laughs> and, yes, and I don't remember everything, but I do. And then I, at some point, I had to go back to the airport. I'd chosen to send my, so I was there for the year, so I right. brought one case, but I'd chosen to send via mail or you know cargo. Right. Um, another suitcase and I had to go back to the airport to navigate and already, you know, trying to navigate the buses, even things like that, which now is obviously nothing. Sure. At the time, you know, not knowing the language and it was really stressful at the time. But then once I got settled, it was like, great. So you do get settled and then you're just Beit Midrash all day or you're exploring or what are you doing? What's okay. that, what's I that need to, I need like? to be. I need to be honest. So I wasn't in the Beit Midrash all day. I would... Uh, I was into the Gemara learning and I was mm-hmm. into learning, but I wasn't one of these people that could just learn all the time. I guess I'm still not. Um, so, I'd, you know, we would hop most off of, to the most tennis of court in the afternoon. Some of us would hop off to the tennis court in the afternoon and play tennis Yeah. when you know, others were learning. So I wasn't, let's say, the best student in that sense. But, you know, I'm not under any obligation to be there. I'm there to try to, to learn and I had to do it on my own terms, if that makes sense. So sure. it, w- it would have been too much for me to just be learning all day. That just wasn't my path. But I definitely learned enough um, to for it to ha- impact my life. I'm glad I had the balance. I was, sure. you know, I, was so, I had the social aspects, you know, hanging out with other people. Some also Bolshevists, so um, well, that think, was good. I think we're seeing more and more that that the classic yeshiva experience 
is for fewer and fewer people. You know, most of us do need to do other things and can't yeah. just sit so that huge, <laughs> Look, I think I needed to do it this way. And even when I got back to Australia, it wasn't like, boom, I went into full 100% observance. Right. Even after Yeshiva, right. I was still grappling with stuff. You know, I was back at university. And I think because I had a bit of a slow build, it actually was more sustainable, at least hmm. in my case. Look, I've seen some people go full on and they've maintained it. To, to this day, sure. that was their path. They were just able to soak it up and that wasn't my path. But I've also seen people that went the full experience and lost it as quickly as they gained it. So for me, that might have been the risk. But because I, I sort of, it was a more of a slow build, uh, Baruch Hashem, it's, I've sustained it and only grown over the years and still growing. So. so during that year, did the idea of living in Israel uh, pop into your mind at all? Oh, yeah, I was consumed with the idea. I really, really wanted to come back, yeah. So when I got back to Australia, besides trying to settle into being an observant Jew back in Perth, at the time there weren't that many. Now, right. there's, uh, Baruch Hashem, I believe there's many, many, right. even many that make Aliyah now. In fact, Perth just got its first Orthodox Jewish rabbi, Supreme Court judge. Interesting. Who was also a figure in my life. Really? Who I was very close to, yeah. Wow. Rabbi Marcus Solomon, I'll give him a, a he deserves a shout out. Um, yeah, so... Um, it definitely, I wanted to come back. But at the same time, I did university and got a job. And you, you were still you know, driven in university when you got back? Like you, oh, you no, were... no. I was very, first of all, I'm not going to just blame it all on the fact that I came to Israel. And, <laughs> right. I did law and commerce and I never really wanted to be a lawyer. I know, you know, there's the stereotype that the parents want you to be a doctor or a lawyer. Nowadays, I think it's a bit different. Engineer comes up a lot more. Sure. By the way, I wish they'd mentioned engineer because <laughs> I think that's what I would have wanted to do. Interesting. But I believe everything happens for a reason. And I believe now, as you mentioned in the intro, I'm in Israel advocacy. And that's where I get my, excuse me, I get my, let's say, I satisfy my advocacy mm -hmm. bent, sure. as it were. But law wasn't for me. So sort of, I kind of floated. And um, I ended up working for an oil company. But this also was instrumental in me ending up in Israel. I wanted to come to Israel, but it didn't look promising. I got a really good job, earning good money. Oil not, company. not as an attorney, not, not an attorney, in finance. But I was on a graduate fast-track management program okay, in wow. an oil company. Now, oil companies pay a lot of money. Yeah, like, yeah. even an open checkbook. So, even as a graduate, I was earning well. Wow. I already bought an apartment as an, as an investment at a very young age. I was on a really good path. Yeah. Financially, at least. Right. So, uh, if I'm honest about it, I needed more of a push to get to Israel. And that's actually where working for this oil company comes in. So, what happened? So, this is what happened. Life took an unexpected turn. I was posted by this oil company. So, I lived in Perth. Right. But I was posted out for six months in Never Never Land, or what we call Whoop Whoop. <laughs> uh, I don't know what, if you have a, what do you call it in America, Iowa? I don't know what you, yeah, yeah. you, know. okay. you, you understand what I'm saying. Out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Interestingly enough, you would think I wouldn't be around any other Jews. I had a Jewish neighbor, <laughs> a guy called Russell Wolf, who was a famous, uh, from per Perth people will know who he is. He just okay. actually passed away, sadly, at a relatively young age. But he mm. was a uh, re resources reporter up. He went to my school. He was, he was right. years older than me, about 10 years older. He happened to be my neighbor in uh, Karatha, it's called. Karatha is the name of the place. Now, this is one of these places 
In the middle of nowhere. Between Perth and Sydney or, no, no, or no, it's near north. Perth? It's north. So it's like a plane ride from right, Perth. Right. About a one or two hour plane ride. It's up. So Perth's on the west. So this is northwest. Yeah. Okay. And you get cyclones, which are like hurricanes. Yeah, and yeah, I get sure. there and boom, there's like a cyclone. And <laughs> you can imagine, but being this Jewish guy up there and I was observing, you know, I was observing. So I kept, I kept my, to myself, you know, on Shabbat, I, you know, didn't socialize, of course. And I, but what happened was because I was, let's say a bit more insular, I went on the internet. This is before Facebook, you know, before social media. And I went on to dating sites. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think and J Day was around back then. Sure. And I was, you know, because I had in my mind, I remember this distinctly. I'm not going to limit myself to Australia. I said, I can't sustain this. I like the job, but like if I'm going to meet someone, I'm not going to meet anyone in Karatha and I'm here for six months. And I do want to be in touch with, you know, I, I wanted to meet someone. So I, I, let's say my search, Israel was part of my search criteria. So okay. I, I got in touch with who would later become my wife, Erica, right. who was her name at the time. Right. And um, we, we were in touch with each other and we were talking, talking for, this is at the beginning of 2000. We were talking a lot in, on the computer and then we were talking on the phone. And around Pesach time of that year, I came, I wanted to have a holiday and I came to, to see her in Israel. She was already here. She was here. She'd been here since 1991. Her parents made Aliyah ah, right okay. after the first Gulf War. Right. They were very, you should interview them at some point. Maybe. By the way, a shout out to my my in-laws, yeah. uh, Marty and Ellen Grogan. It's their 50th wedding anniversary today. Oh, wow. I'm actually going to celebrate with them right after this, uh, this interview. Yes. That's beautiful. Yeah. So, th so she was here and we, yada, I can yada, yada, yada this, but we ended up getting engaged. Wait, wait. Oh, you don't want me to yada, yada. No, no. Uh, no, no. <clears throat> Whatever is fine. I'm just, I'm just for the sake of the listeners, yeah. putting this into perspective because you said the oil company had a lot to do with it. Had you stayed in Perth, you, you would have had somewhat of a social infrastructure yes. there for you. Yes. But going to Karatha, it's yes. called? It forced me. It forced you to go on the internet to look for yeah. socialization. Yeah, exactly. That's this what I'm saying. But that's why, I, why when I look back, I see God's hand in everything. Yeah. I really do. Every step <laughs> of the way, I'm moving in one direction and then boom, it's all roads lead to where I am now, right, doing what I'm doing right now. I believe that. Right. I really believe that. Okay. With all my, my so, kishkas. So, so, let's, so let's talk about that first meeting. So, so you came to Israel to visit. Yes. And like, done so deal? So she picked me up from the airport. No. <laughs> you want to now get into no, Mary met Sally. It's actually also a great story, but like, she panicked. She's like, what am I doing? Oh my God, this guy came from Australia. To, no, obviously, you know, looking back, we ended up getting married and she really, sure. really was into me, just like I was really, really into her. But she panicked. So we, she was like, after initially meeting, she like didn't, didn't want to have anything to do with me. And I was like in Israel, it's like, oh man, like, what have I done? She's wow. like, what have I done? Her parents, yeah. they said, listen, you can't do this. I was there for, I think I came for about two and a half, three weeks or something. And they said, listen, you have to invite him for sailor. I know it's going to be uncomfortable for you, but he came all the way to meet you. So they did invite me. And I remember my mother-in-law putting us to work in the kitchen, grating things for the haroset. Sure. We bonded doing the normal stuff. It, all the pressure was kind of off. Then where where we were, was this? This was in Maitar. They still live oh, in okay. the same house. Okay. So I was helping them prepare for the Seder and we just bonded. We went on hikes in the Negev together. So it was sort of more normal. You see, we met under, back then, you know, everyone, like there's so many people that now meet on the internet. 
whether it's dating sites or whether it's just through mutuals on Facebook or sure. social media. Sure. Now it's nothing. But back then, it was such a weird story that we were interviewed. We, we, our story was in the Australian newspaper. Really? Yes. Wow. About how we met. Yeah. It was more of a promotional story for MatchNet who owned Jay okay. at the time. But still, okay. they saw merit in the story like, wow, guy here from Karatha at right. the time, right, meeting right. woman in Israel, ending up, you know, getting engaged. Unbelievable. So, so you have the Seder and the, the grading things before the Seder. Yeah, yeah. and we really and then, bonded and it was more relaxed and we ended up, so we're faced with a choice, like what are we going to do now? Right. It's, it's a long distance thing. Pretty long distance. Pretty yeah. long distance. <laughs> so I did something which was looking back is absolutely crazy, but again, meant to be. So this is after about two weeks or so. Right. I'm like, what are we going to do? I have to show some sort of commitment. So I proposed. Really? Yes. But I know it sounds crazy, but what we understood back then was it was sort of like a statement of intent more than a real meaning. No, it really, it's, it's basically, let's see what happens. So she basically, Erica then came to Australia and stayed with my family for, she came, well, it was about four or five months in Australia, four months, I think. Wow. And so we got, she got to see me in my home habitat, yeah. native Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sound like a kangaroo. Koala. <laughs> And then we, we got married at the end of the year. So what I'm saying is, although the engagement happened pretty quickly, we still then, there was somewhat of a more normal process. But it was a bit of a risk and it was a bit of going on the limb. It was very spontaneous. I, I happened to do some, even though I'm quite yucky and organized, I've, there have been parts of my life, like the yeshiva experience where I went boom. But again, I believe that the hand of, not to take away my, my um, capacity to think and to do things, my agency, but I believe the hand of God was in everything because it was a very happy marriage. It was five kids later, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. we would still be married had it not been for the illness. Of but, course. Um, but yeah, when I when I when I'm talking about it now to you, it seems it could sound pretty crazy, <laughs> but sometimes you just have to go with your heart. And and if I hadn't done all these things, that's how I ended up making Aliyah, by the way. So she was the the final push. Right. She wanted, there was no question that we weren't going to live in Australia. So I quit my job, made Aliyah. We got married at the end of the year. I started from scratch, career-wise. Right. Wait, and wait, I've never looked back. So she comes from a, an American family? Yes. They okay. were from California. So you went from meeting and then sort of as the young, cool people say today, being ghosted for a few days. Yes. Oh, yeah. To being good. invited for Seder, to being, at least in some general sense, engaged yes. within two weeks. Well, two weeks of actually within meeting each other in person, but we'd been right. speaking on the phone for months and months and months. Sure. And I just remember we had very deep conversations, enough that we wanted to, it wasn't just, let's say, passing photos and being attractive. <laughs> we really were talking about values and where we saw ourselves and That's know, amazing. Fa having a family one day. So we really connected in a very big way. And then there was a bit of panic. Okay, it didn't go yeah. off. You know, like my first time in Israel, my first time meeting her didn't, you know, there's a bit of a theme, having a bit of a rough patch. But I think it's actually a good message also even in terms of my Aliyah and for everyone mm. listening that there will be rough patches. But um, when you make, these life-changing decisions, you owe it to yourself to follow through and at least give it a, a fighting chance. Hmm. And I've done this many times in my life and I couldn't be happier with the way things have turned out in the sense of my decisions. Yeah. So you get married at the end of the year. This is what, 
This is 94? It was actually the first night. So it's coming up to our what would have been our 21st anniversary. It was the first night of Hanukkah we got married. Really? In Besheva, yeah. Wow. And then just stayed in Israel or you went back to Australia no. to sew things up? No, no. I'd already made Aliyah. I made Aliyah in November. Okay. And we got married at the end of the next month. It was December the 24th. Right. That was that year. No, I, I didn't look back. I, I knew I was committed to this because, one, I already, as I told you, I'd already was pining. I was already pining to come back to Israel. But I knew right. I needed a bit more of a kick up the tuchus. Yeah. And this, and so every step of the way, from looking online to someone that lived in Israel, like I was kind of almost forcing myself out of my comfort zone because I knew I was in a big comfort zone in Australia with mm. this job. But for the, by, by them posting me out to Karatha, which was outside my comfort zone, but not in a necessarily... I, look, I love the experience, by the way. <laughs> I met some great people. I'm in touch with to this very day, some of my colleagues. They're really good friends and very supportive. But, you know, I knew I couldn't stay in that situation for too long. And then, yeah, it, it, it sort of reaffirmed the urgency I need to be in Israel. Right. And in meeting Erica, let's say, was just the kick that I needed, the added impetus that I needed. Right. Because to make Aliyah by yourself is one thing, but to make Aliyah by yourself, but knowing you have a support infrastructure, a new family there. You know, I didn't have any kids, so to build a family in Israel also was very appealing to me. I want to go back just to Karatha for one more second, and then we'll come back yeah. to, uh, to the beginnings of your marriage. Um, you mentioned Russell Wolf yes. as being a Jewish neighbor, but you you didn't mention any any impact he may have had on you or anything like that. Was it just like a f- sort of an interesting point that you had a Jewish neighbor, or, or were you guys no? So we, talking we hung about out. Things? We hung out a bit. No, no. So we weren't. You know, it's very busy, and I was doing my thing. But and what I'm saying is, what are the cha- like? I'm again the theme of what I'm talking about is the hand of God, where I see the hand of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By having Russell there, that familiar face, and anyone that knew Russell, who's such a lovable larrikin uh, and such a friendly guy, and nice. It was very comforting to me just having him there. Yeah, yeah. I remember interesting story because I mentioned the cyclone before. I just remember that when the first cyclone hit and I'm hunkered down, you know, it's sort of, if you have to draw a parallel, it's when the rockets, Lahavdil, of course, right? right. Uh, I don't want to compare the two things. One's man, you know, we, we know the difference, right? Yeah. But the parallel being that you sort of hunkered down in your home and you can't go out. Right. You, so that I was hunkered down in my home, but the wind is howling outside and I had to stock up on food cans and but for me that nothing like that ever happened before right and he was on the radio and i I remember calling in and asking him to play i'm I'm big into elvis costello even though he's a now i know he's a boycotter that's a story for another day the time i i almost sued the boycott movement uh because elvis costello cancelled his uh, concert here true story but um and he played the song for me and I know it sounds like a little thing, maybe maybe an interesting little story, but he was very comforting to me to have him there. But also on a broader scale, I just really felt like, come on, there were like 2,000 people in Karata and the other Jew is right next door, like <laughs> right. In, or in, in my street. What yeah. are the chances? I yeah. believe everything happens for a reason. I yeah. really believe it. So for yeah. me, that's what it represents more than any specific conversations that we had on an ongoing basis. Got it. Just having Russell there was enough. So where did you guys, when you got married, where did you set up shop? So we, okay, so when we got married, we set up shop in Ramat Beit Shemesh. Ramat Beit Shemesh. So we're sitting here now in my home in Beit Shemesh proper, if I can call it that. Yeah. <laughs> Old Beit Shemesh. Yeah. And, but we went to Ramat Beit Shemesh because at the time there was some buzz that that's where the younger people were going. And I didn't, re- we didn't do so much research. Had I done, 
more research, I wouldn't have ended up in Ramapi Chemish. It just wasn't for me. There's some great people there and it just wasn't for us. We, where I'm living now, as you can see, and as you know, because you know, you're familiar with the area. Very much. Um, yeah. you, you used to live in this area for I a did. certain period of time. Yeah. That's where we met. It's more mixed here. I feel like I'm more in Israel. Beit Shemesh has obviously a lot of Anglos, which is great, and I love that. But for me, the best of both worlds is they have some Anglos that we can hang out with, but also I need to feel like I'm more in Israel. In this neighborhood, you definitely feel like you're more in Israel. So that was one of the reasons we moved to this neighborhood. But before that, we lived on, in, in your neighborhood. Um, we bought an apartment there. So we lived in Ramat Beit Shemesh for about two and a half years. Then we moved, we, we were renting. We wanted to buy a place, but we wanted to move to, let's say, an area which was people more modern in their outlook. There were people like that in Ramah Beit Shemesh, but there were people also that weren't. Right. And we happened to just live on a street where we were a bit detached from the people more like us, if yeah. I can put it that way. Sure. I'm trying to I say it diplomatically because I'm not being critical. It's just where you feel more at home. Right. Right. So we felt more at home, more in this neighborhood or the, the, the other neighborhood that you live in. Um, but then we moved to this neighborhood, one, to feel more, even more in Israel. But also we wanted the place with a garden. You know, we lived in the top uh, floor apartment, which was a great start. And we still have great friends from th that area. But we just needed more space as we had more kids. Yeah, sure. Um, so she, she, she grew up in the States, but where did she grow up? In the Valley, in, in California. Okay, so yeah. she grew up in the Valley. You grew up in Perth. Yeah. But when her family moved to Israel, she lived in Meitar. Yes. Like Meitar is like it's just like Israel's Perth. I mean, it's like it's like small, yes, quiet kind of uh, well, they, community. Well, they, they lived in Renana at a certain point. They lived oh, in okay. Ramot. Okay, they so, ended up there. But they, and I mean, if you ever go to Meitar, which I'm sure you're familiar with, it's just great. If you like more space and sure, this kind of the quieter. As you said, it's more yeah. rural in yeah. a way. You, you yeah. can look out in the desert from their house and see the sheep. Right. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, but yeah. you have to really want that kind of lifestyle. What this is one yeah. of the beautiful things about Israel. And I was just mentioning Beit Shemesh, how I moved from neighborhood to neighborhood and even got a different experience within Beit Shemesh. Yeah. But Israel as a whole, as small as it is, you go from place to place, as you know, and you have completely different experiences. For sure. And that's in, one in, of the... In such a small so, country. And right? if I compare it to Australia, going back to Perth, the original question, living in Perth was very kind of, I could say bland in a way, although it was a, a very relaxed lifestyle, it was kind of much of the sameness. And one of the mm. reasons I loved Israel, one of them, initially after having come here wasn't just a religious pull for me but also just there's more excitement here for good and bad but i i just need more excitement more rich experiences if that makes sense there's more, there are more rich sense. experiences here where you're really learning things and going outside of what you're familiar with and you know for me as i said perth australia great would love to visit more often and I love you know I'm still very attached to the culture there I followed all the sports I have subscriptions watching the sports Australian rules football cricket etc you're et still into it I'm still very much into it and I feel very connected and I follow the news and I'm still friends with my you know I have my friends back there Facebook and social media has made it a lot easier of course right you don't have to get on the phone anymore and just call so I feel very connected and very Australian still but my life is completely here so when you guys got married, what, what, uh, what kind of work did you do? So I started, I was very much, okay, what am I going to do? I didn't know Hebrew. I only did a, a, a month of Ulpan. Right. And then it was more about, okay, now we have to get going. I can't just be in Ulpan. I, I felt that need, that drive to 
So this is just my the way that I am, and I encourage people who are listening that may kalyan maybe are finding it tough to consider this that you don't necessarily have to do what you were doing back home. I I I, I trusted in going going with the flow as it were, but I trusted right. myself that I'd be able if I was motivated and ambitious enough, I'd just be able to succeed. What do I mean by succeed? I mean being able to raise a family here because I see living here as not a right, but a privilege. Hmm. Talk about that. I think it's just a privilege to live here, not a right, and um, you have to earn it. I think you have to earn it. And what, what do I mean by earn it? I mean, it can be hard. It can be tough. You don't have everything given to you on a platter, so you earn it. So what did that mean for me? I wasn't worked, you know, I didn't find a job with an oil company here. We didn't have oil companies. Not back then. <laughs> back then. I got the job. First of all, my first job was for a place called Isratech, like as a strategic consultant. Okay. But then, this was when the high tech bubble. This year, you remember the the, the you know what hit the fan in two thousand. Yeah, Second of Intifada, and then the, the high tech bubble burst at the time. With right. the, you know the first the dot com bubble. The, yeah, the dot com yeah. bubble. Yeah, back then. So I I didn't have that job for very long, and then I'm like, what am I going to do? And a friend, someone that I knew, his wife worked in technical writing. So I thought, okay, I have to get a job. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be picky. I'm, I'm going to just start work as a technical writer. So I worked for a place for about three months, and I remember very distinctly. That's where nine one one. That's where I was nine one one. Okay. I was at work. Right. That was so surreal. Everyone has their nine one one story. I just remember that very yes. specifically. I was at that place. It was in Jerusalem. And I was just learning. You know, I didn't have any technical writing background. You just needed good English at the time. And the ability to write clearly, which I believe I, I have. <laughs> Maybe that was one of the things law school gave me was the ability to sort of get to the point in my writing and to think analytically in a, in a structured way. And then there was an advertisement from a company called SAP. Some of you might know know it as SAP, but because I've worked there, I know you don't you don't call it that. Plus, SAP, at least in Australia, has a connotation, not such a good connotation as a word. If you refer to someone as a like a SAP, yeah. yeah. Um, so you don't also, call it SAP, it's SAP, States, yeah. it's a multinational company. And I saw, and this again, my theme about the hand of God in everything. Yeah. They were advertising for a technical writer for a software, logistics software. Now, what I didn't mention is I worked in logistics in the oil company oh, and I used okay. this software oh, as really? a customer. Yes. That's incredible. Like, when I was in Karatha, I was learning, see, I was on the management program to, to learn the, the whole logistic train to be, chain rather, to be a manager of the, you know, the logistics area of the company, eventually. So you're learning all the parts. So you're getting hands dirty. I was, I was packing boxes in Karatha <laughs> with people that had been in jail. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like, talk about rich experiences. Yeah. Um, loved it. And here I, they're developing modules of this software at SAP. In, at the time, it was in Herzliya. It was called Ofec Tech at the time. It wasn't okay. SAP Ofec. They later merged with other SAP, uh, other companies that SAP had acquired here in Israel to become SAP Labs Israel, which is it's known today as that. Right. And they're in Renana. They moved to Renana in, I think, 2004. But what I'm saying is it was just right, wow. I, I, I interviewed and got the job. And I, lo- I actually really loved it. Even though I didn't see myself as writing instruction manuals for the rest of my life, it paid well at the time. I really enjoyed it because I was actually, you know, there's a business aspect to the software that I was very familiar with. So I felt very good at home. And actually what happened was I worked really hard. 
I was really motivated and I had, the, I had a business acumen about what we were talking about. So I actually got promoted very quickly. I found myself a manager within two and a half years, hmm. which is not the usual trajectory. Okay. okay. And I was a manager there for, let's say, close to 10 years. Right. And in circumstances would, would intervene and I wouldn't, um, let's say, remain a manager, uh, you know, to do with my wife's illness. Yeah. And... Um, but I only left that job at SAP. And then I had other jobs even afterwards and I they were great to me, by the way. They allowed me to work really? from home and you know, look after things at home. And I worked part-time, but I, I wasn't in the office for like one and a half years. And this is before Corona. I actually left there before Corona. I left uh, yeah. two years ago, over two years ago. But th- this is interesting what you're talking about. This gets to the, this point you made about the privilege versus right. That if, if you would have been... Uh, maybe too arrogant or too proud, or let's say. even. Right. Yeah, proud. Um, at, at the time, you would have said, well, technical writing, give me a break. That's not for someone like me. I'm, I'm you know, I'm management material. I'm, um, but you, you said, no, 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 no. Like, it, in this country, you got to work your way up. And yeah, so you and, just and my, went for my it. My ultimate goal was to live here and raise a family here. Like, my ultimate goal, we're not in Australia, maybe my ultimate goal was to get a good job, make lots of money. <laughs> buy property, you know, like to be rich, you know, a yeah, very sure. mature kind of concept that so many people have and still <laughs> yeah. to this day have. For sure. But I changed my priorities. And I knew I wanted to live. And, and another thing is being religious back then, at least in Australia, wasn't that comfortable for me, like to, to integrate the lives, to live these like double life almost. It, but, you know, not having, there weren't many kosher restaurants in, <laughs> I remember used to, there was a vegan restaurant that opened. It didn't have a tourda or anything, but many of us would eat there because there were no ingredients that sure. were... Not kosher. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, here, like, it's, it's, it's infused in everyday life. I mean, I look now and no matter what religious observance level you are, I happen to be, you know, religiously observant, but even if you're not, it permeates, you know, the, the Chagim and Shabbat, you feel the difference. And, you know, kids, I, I had colleagues at SAP that were secular, but their level of Tanakh knowledge was beyond anything... Even religious people in Australia had. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, there's I'm not reason. saying it's always that way, but they learn a lot of people. It's great. It depends what school you go to. But There's a reason why Rav Cook refers to Jewish people as Israelim. Yes, yes, <laughs> because, exactly. Because it, it, in our natural habitat, you mentioned habitat before. Yes. In our natural habitat, we are, we're living the Torah existence. Even if we're not Even if you don't know uh, about religiously it. observant, yes. You're still in the game. Exactly. <laughs> so for me, this was part of it. So yeah, I just, I really changed my perspective. Looking back, my priorities changed. Now, actually, even though I wasn't chasing the, the American dream here, as it were, yeah. things worked out for me in that sense. You right. know, Baruch Hashem, uh, from a career point of view, it really worked out. Again, the hand of God. I call him in the Shemaim. <laughs> I keep saying it, but I'm not just saying it like a broken record. I, I, I mean it. I'm looking back and I'm really thinking about things and with everything, everything happens for a reason, the good and the bad. Yeah. Obviously some bad stuff has happened. But once you accept everything, you know, you have to take the bad with the good, but you accept everything. And it's, it's all up here. And I think also in terms of Aliyah, if you accept that there are going to be hard times, it makes it so much easier. You can really get through it. And there's such a support network here if you need it. Hmm. You don't have to do Okay, I had the support network from... My wife's family, who are now my family. But even if you don't have that, we're all family, like we were saying before. The brotherhood, the clapping on the plane, everyone's family. You will always have people 
And of course, now with social media and Facebook groups, and there's real actual infrastructure now to support you. Nefesh Benefesh, if you're coming from America and other such places. So actually, in some ways, it's easier to make Aliyah now than it was before, back then. Even though I look back and I'm, I'm so grateful for the <laughs> relatively soft landing that I had, even though it was, it was tough in the beginning. When did the Israel advocacy uh, uh, activity begin for you? <laughs> also, you can say by accident, but I call him in the Shemaim. Yes. I'll stop saying that. It's a certain point in this. <laughs> Never uh, stop saying <laughs> In 2003, I read a news article about blogs. Right. The advent of a blog. And I guess I, I was curious about it. What is this thing? And I, I felt like I wanted to write. Now, at the time, it wasn't like to write about Israel advocacy. I started, if you look back, I've told this story before on numerous other podcasts and other such things. Wait a second. This is not exclusive? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you some exclusive <laughs> bits. My first post was about Australian cricket and a scandal that had embroiled the Australian cricket team. One of the players, this is maybe the exclusive, had taken a diuretic. Sorry, right. you might need to bleep that. No, we're, we're okay. It's, not, it's, a bit, it's, it's medical. It's, it, look, the, the post is about as asinine as, as that sounds. But okay, <laughs> you know, I was experimenting with the medium. Yeah. And what happened was no one was reading it, of course. And there were, you know, there's no social media to share such posts. So it was me and my parents that were reading the blog. I'm not sure if my dad was reading it. Maybe just my mum. <laughs> just joking. And um, at a certain point in time, I remember this very clearly, a terrorist, we took out a terrorist called, or liquidated, a terrorist called uh, Rantesi, as a sure. Hamas terrorist. Sure. And for some reason, I, I, wrote, I wanted to write about it, and I wrote about it, and this was then picked up by some other blogger in Australia, of all places, yeah, back to my roots. And he posted about it. Now, he got a, maybe my traffic went up from three to ten that day. <laughs> but it wasn't so much the traffic as the realization that, wait, how did he even find it? Wait a minute. I can write stuff and people are actually going to read it besides my family. And Nafala Asimon, the penny dropped. And that's when I decided to dedicate myself more to Israel topics because I was always Zionist. And mm-hmm. so, I would, you know, when I tell this story, people ask, oh, did you always know, you know, it was a cathartic experience. You always wanted to vent your frustrations about what was going on in Israel and the world. And no, it, it, it kind of happened by accident, but we believe there are no accidents. So I, over the years, I developed... It, the, the tone and the everything about the blog, the, even the messaging a bit and the way that I go about things has changed over the years. I've refined it. So it started off as a hobby. And I, be, I was doing this on the side, you know, I had the second Lebanon war and I'd be, it was, this was before Twitter was a big thing. So I'd be like live blogging, trying to live blog while, right. you know, right. balancing everything out. Because um, a lot of people were coming to visit the blog to get the information. There wasn't that much information beyond the news outlets and maybe... Yeah, no, there, there, was, there weren't many live bloggers back then. So then I, it, it, it so developed from a hobby to almost an, I felt like an obligation to inform people. Of course, you could call it a bit of an addiction as well. <laughs> I love it. And then you, you realize that, okay, maybe what drew me to law in the beginning, at least what I thought law would be, wasn't just my parents saying maybe you should be a lawyer, but maybe there was always this, because I loved debating at school and... Advocacy, real advocacy yeah. for something you believe in, not a client that you might not believe in. Right. So over the years, it grew, this, this blog, this website, to a point where by the time I left SAP two years ago, I was in the position with so many, such readership, and let's say I was getting, already getting some sort of, uh, some donations, to already have the start of an amuta, a non-profit. So I, I formed a non-profit. 
Israeli Cool Now is not just a blog or a website, but it's an actual non-profit. Right. Which I'm trying to expand. Um, quick plug for Israeli Cool. If anyone believes in Israel advocacy done in an effective way, I believe is in an effective way, not preaching to the choir, then I'm always um, looking for <laughs> donations. No, but, but in all seriousness, it's, again, everything happens for a reason. And right. I was able to, Baruch Hashem, transition from this high-tech job into doing my passion, what I love, what I wake up in the morning, besides, of, of course, my family, my kids, and do, and I have a smile on my face, even though it sounds weird, you know what I do. I'm, I'm tackling anti-Semitism. I do know. And all this, so why do I have a smile on my face? Because I really I enjoy what I do in the sense I feel like I'm making some sort of a difference. Even if one person reads something that I wrote and is influenced for the better to, you know, towards Israel... That that's that's making a difference to me. For me, that point about having a smile on your face, even as you're pointing out all these challenges that Israel has, um, is something I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, because it it may be actually counterintuitive that um, focusing on the negative, so to speak, yeah. could take its toll on you. And you're saying it's it's the opposite. Well, first of all, I do focus on the negative, but I do also post positive things as well. Right. Yeah, people always ask me this. How do you do it? Like, how, yeah, do, how you do you maintain it? Well, first of all, what you have to realize is that for a long time, this was also a bit of an escape for me. Because as my wife was going through the illness, real life was actually harder. I mean, look, this is all real life that I'm blogging and writing about. But what I mean is the day-to-day life was very difficult. And for me to write and feel... And, and she's... At the time, she, and I'm getting a bit dark here, but my wife is dealing with something outside of our control. We're trying all sorts of treatments and all around the world. We're trying everything, but we don't have much control. And we're praying, of course. But I felt very personally very powerless during this period. And so for me to be able to influence, and I get feedback that, wow, you, you know, your work, I used, I cited your work, or I was able to use an argument with someone, and even ex-anti-Semites, coming to their senses because of something I wrote. It happens rarely, but it sometimes happens. So this, you have to understand, I feel like I'm, I have some sort of control. Right. So for me, it was, this was very cathartic. And, and okay, therapeutic. So that, that, therapeutic. Exactly, thank you, therapeutic. And this has continued to this day in the sense of focusing on the good, again, on the matara, on the, on the goal. So yes, wading through the filth and the anti-Semitic posts and all this stuff could take its toll, but I've developed a very thick skin over the years. And for me, it's all about. It's more about the goal. And I can. It, there's a parallel with Aliyah as well. These are all hmm. repeating themes. That even if day to day things can be hard, and you're dealing with bureaucracy or hard times, always focus on the prize. And it's a huge prize. Uh, you also, and I'm going to give a little plug for for Israeli Cool also because I think it's fantastic. Thank you. Even if it does often focus on the negative, it's so much fun. Like. You, you have a, a sort of, uh, I don't want to say sarcastic, because sarcastic is, no, a, is a negative it, to- term, but um, you're, you're making them into fools. You're, you're, you're showing how ridiculous they are and how, how, how misinformed, at best, misinformed yeah, they are. That's at best. Or, or perhaps, uh, correct, yeah. or perhaps they, they just have it in for us and yeah. they're not willing to look at reality. Yeah. Um, and 
and there is a fun tone to it. Like when you're when you're uh, what's his name, Richard uh, Silverstein. Silverstein. Yeah. I don't know how much he's even. Uh, Not much anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I've moved on to but, a bit, bigger. Yeah, better yeah, but but he he just you made him look foolish. Yeah. So I, first of all, I you know I I have a I think I have a sense of humor. I mean I, I have a certain laconic Australian style. I guess having grown up in Australia, and that's my writing style and that's how i think and how i act even in real life as you hopefully it comes across here maybe but uh, yeah I, do, I try to use that it's 100 it's right and this is a deliberate strategy with israeli cool meaning some people might think oh well i'm just having fun and taking the you know what out of people making light but say. actually i've given a lot of thought and this is what i mean by developing a style because i'm trying to be effective and i know that Trotting out dryly like a robot facts and figures and responding to lies by just saying you're wrong and here's the fact that in 1948 this happened and blah, 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 without people relating to you as a human being doesn't work. We know that. Mm. And that's where Hasbara, if I can put it, use that term, explaining, has failed miserably over the years, I believe. So I've always tried to distinguish myself from the pack and make a difference by injecting humor, entertainment, and these sorts of things, not just so people will read and get the eyeballs on the page, but also so people will go, hey, this Aussie Dave, or now David Lang, yeah. I feel like I know this guy. And I, you know what, I even like him. I might not agree with him all the time, but um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have him over for a coffee or a beer or a whiskey. That, that's kind of my goal. And yes, the other part, as you mentioned rightly, is to make fun of these people. It can't be about being on the defense. We have to go on the offense. So when they lie, the defensive thing is to just rebut the lie, right. which is important, by the way. But what I try to do is not just rebut the lie, but say, hey, why do you keep lying? Hey, guys. And by the way, I'm not trying to ever convince these people of their wrongdoing. I mean, that really, it can work, but you don't want to invest 80% of your time on the 20% right? You want to get sure. 80% of the people that you can actually influence. So you make fools of these 20%, if I can put it that way. Yeah. As yeah. an aside, it's always 80-20 with everything, right? This Pareto sure. rule always works. Somehow. I'm a big believer that's, in yeah, it. Yeah, big believer in that. So that's what I try to do. And I hopefully, I mean, I think it works. And, and now with social media, I see more and more people now doing it on like Twitter, especially where many Israel advocates now are more on the offense. Right. Offense is the best defense. Yeah, yeah. Well, keep keep doing it. Thank you so much. Um, I want to talk about two other categories, and then we'll get to the rapid-fire questions. Yeah, okay. Raising kids in Israel. Yes. Uh, you know how you grew up. You have siblings? I have one sister. Okay. So you know how you grew up with your sister, uh, and and you've been raising your own kids for the last... How old is your oldest? My oldest is 20. Okay, so the last 20 years. What's it like to raise kids in Israel? As I alluded to before, it is rewarding it's it's wonderful because they have an, a level of education and appreciation for who they are and their heritage that i never had now this is no criticism of my parents but just living in australia it was a concept more I, there were bits and pieces that were taken as i explained before that i you know the friday night the kiddush and but to really just live a life where jew you are a jew first and foremost back in australia i was Australian first and Jewish second. At least that's how I kind of felt. Yeah. And here they are living the tradition. The, the tradition is continuing. Now, whatever paths they take religiously moving forward, 
nothing can take away from the fact that they're, they're Jews living in Israel. Our dest- I believe our destiny is here. The Jewish people as a whole, yes, we might always have many people living outside of Israel, but this is where history is taking place. This is, this is, our faith is intertwined with this, this land here, our homeland. So I'm just so proud that they're here. And I'm, just, I'm proud of who they are as people, of course, first and foremost. They're just wonderful people, my kids. <laughs> Really mature and, and they care and empathetic. And I, I couldn't be prouder of these kids. Do they appreciate it? Do they appreciate what you've done for them by raising them here? Or maybe or? You need to interview them. <laughs> maybe. No, I, they're happy. You know, my, my second, so my oldest is now studying for her university exams. Yeah. And my second oldest, uh, Maya, so this is the Tara here. We're looking at the yeah, photo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Maya's in the army right now. So she's my first child to be in the army. Atara oh. did Sherut uh, Lomi. Right. For the Ministry of Tourism or the Tourist Information Center in the Old City. And yeah, so I'm so proud of both of them because they're serving in, in, uh, in both ways that one can serve the country. And they love Israel. <laughs> they're, they're, they're really high on Israel. Yeah. They also don't consider food food. They don't consider ever leaving Israel to live somewhere else. Of course, right. they'd like to visit other places as sure. all of us would like to. Right. But I'm really proud of that fact that they really feel Israeli and connected to Israel and it's not even a question. And no, my kids, I think, appreciate the way we raise them. I mean, we're a very close family and they love being at home and this is really their, the core of their being, you know, the, the home base is really they feel at home and love being at home. So I'm, I'm proud of that. Of course, it's not, of course, it's not just my doing and it's probably more my, my late wife's doing. But obviously, I played a part in that. I'm proud of the way that they are and any part that I played in that. Can we talk for a few minutes about uh, Ava Muna? Of course. Erica was her name. That's why right. for the listener. They... <laughs> um, I want to understand what it was like working through the Israeli health system. Great question. I'm glad because I have to say it's amazing. <laughs> No, it really is. And now people can always point to issues and problems and what, you know, some glitches and there are glitches along the way, but to be able to afford. So going through cancer, these cancer, some of these cancer drugs are like tens of thousands of shekels. Right. We didn't have to pay for them if they're in the cell, the, the basket. For the most part, okay, towards the end we had to pay, but that's not the, the fault of the Israeli health system. It's just like sure. they don't have everything in the cell. If there's more experimental drugs right. that haven't been approved here then you have to pay. So that's, I don't blame anyone for that. But the level of care was incredible. And I believe, so, you know, she had stage four ovarian cancer, which is a death sentence for the most part, but she lived seven years. Actually, seven years to the day from the initial diagnosis. I remember at the and, funeral And that's you another, that. yeah. you know, I'm not going to say it. But no, you know, there's no coincidences. Yeah, yeah. Um, but part of it was, of course, the, it's not just the treatment the drugs that you take that expand your life, it's your attitude. And it is the prayers, of course. But it's also the support that you receive along the way. And that's also from your friends and that great community. The community in this neighborhood, your neighborhood, the <laughs> extended Anglo community, and even around Israel and even the world now with the internet. People praying for her. It was amazing. But yeah, the health system had... The fact that we... Okay, there were issues along the way, but for the most part, it was... You know, if we were in the States, I don't know how we could have done it, Interesting. to be honest. Not to put you're down the fi- States. You're saying financially. Financially. Yeah. I think that, that uh, 
especially the last couple of years with, uh, with COVID, I think the world is starting to understand that when it comes to health, Israel is also a light unto the nations. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, that, the COVID showed how the HMOs that we have here, yeah. the infrastructure was in place already to dispense right. the vaccines and to have the records of people. Yeah. And everything was kind of seamless in that sense. Of course, the, we won't go into the whole COVID and the, the issues that, uh, that, that, that are surrounding everything around that. But yeah, we have the infrastructure in place already, which made it relatively simple for Israel to vaccinate people that wanted to be vaccinated right. and to keep sure. track of it. And yeah, incredible. It's been incredible, actually. I was, I was, I received, <laughs> this is the incredible thing about the Israeli system. I, I received a uh, PCR test at a gas station yeah. <laughs> through an independent um, uh, diagnostics company and received the results of that test from my HMO. Wow which is completely disconnected from, but they're also interconnected. It was amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, if I was interviewing uh, your wife, what points of differentiation might you guys have in terms of your attitudes about Israel? Or were you in lockstep with each other? You, you talked about, you know, when, when you first arrived and, and uh, the initial bumps, but, but that you just powered through because you knew that it was the right thing. Well, she, I guess she came here as a teenager. Yes, she did. Which is not the easiest time to come here. Yeah. What, what would she be talking to me about? I want to give her a few minutes. I think she would agree with what I'm saying in terms of powering through. And first of all, she was just as Zionist as I am, <laughs> meaning she was happy to be here. She didn't regret having come here, even though in the beginning it was hard. She had to do the army without knowing Hebrew. She wow. had more challenges than I did because of the age and the stage of her life that she came at. And, you know, I never had to do the army. I was already old. They didn't want me. I did go to Lishkata Gios, but they didn't want me, right. uh, which is fine. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not bitter or anything. And I found <laughs> other ways to hopefully serve Israel. Well, yes. In, your yes, kids serve. Exactly. That's true as well. So, yeah, we were more or less in lockstep in that regard about Israel's the place we need to be. Yeah. She was more Israeli than me, in a sense. Um, in terms of understanding the mentality. I understand it, but I'm, let's say over the years I've gotten tougher as, a, you know what I mean by that, tougher, like being able to get through bureaucracy and yeah. power through. Sometimes you have to be more assertive. I'm pretty assertive, but I've definitely, you know, having come from Australia, I was a bit too laid back maybe in the beginning. And she already was at that point where she understands the mentality. Having sure. grown here, she was here most of her life. So that would be one difference. But in terms of the actual core values about these surrounding Israel and we were in lockstep. Right. Well, um, she had a significant impact on this community, uh, particularly uh, given her optimism and uh, positive outlook on life. And so uh, that's a, a mark that she definitely left. And I'm sure you see some of that in your kids. And uh, yeah, absolutely. she lives on for sure. Can we shift to the rapid fire questions? Hit me. Okay. You ready? I think so. Okay. In the Lang home, Kedem or Israeli grape juice? My kids prefer wine. Interesting. I use grape juice for Havdalah because on Shabbat we've had wine and I have a Kiddush <laughs> club in the morning where I drink whiskey. By the end of Shabbat, I don't want to touch alcohol until next Shabbat. 
<laughs> right. That so, wasn't a quick answer so, to the rapid no, question. But, so, so your kids actually like to have They wine. like the sweet red wine. Ah, uh, like the, like the Manischewitz type old, wine? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the kids, no, no, my older ones would like, you know, more sophisticated wine, but that's yeah, what yeah. we have. But even my youngest, who is almost 12, she also insists on the wine. Okay. So Shabbat, we have wine, and then Havdalah, the grape juice. And I pick the, the light-looking grape juice, not the purple grape juice. Right. The Kedem is purple. Correct. So I prefer the other one. Uh, Heinz or Israeli ketchup? Heinz. No, no issues about Zionism with, with doing that? Is Heinz anti-Semitic? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> I'm not one of these... Look, there are certain products which the Israeli version is somewhat inferior at the moment. <laughs> Once it pick, the Israeli ketchup picks up its game... I will be more than willing to move towards it. No, no, I'm not apologizing for that. I, no need. I pay my taxes here. <laughs> no need. Uh, what's, what's an Israeli food that you really, really love? Oh, wow. Uh, specifically Israeli food that I really love. I love, I don't have it so much anymore, but I used to devour Malawak. Really? Yeah. Is that is that Israeli or am I culturally appropriate? There's very little that's actually yeah, yeah, Israeli, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, but yeah. it is. So it, I don't want people to accuse certainly me of not, cultural appropriation. Right. It's not Australian. Right. It's definitely not Australian. <laughs> Although I do love Vegemite, if that's a question. Oh, interesting. Yeah. If you say Marmite or Vegemite, it has to be Vegemite. I, I just gave you a question <laughs> and an answer. Yeah, Malawak is just one thing. I haven't eaten it in years, but I just remember, especially in the early days, I would be eating it all the time. Now I'm much more, I know it's not so healthy, and I'm much more picky about my diet. I'm trying yeah. to live a healthier lifestyle. But in terms of just pure taste and in Israeli food, I love Malawak. <laughs> and that just came in my head. Yeah. yeah. Is there an Israeli food that you're like, I have no idea how people actually like this thing? It's not really Israeli, and I don't want to insult anyone, but um, some of the Moroccan and Arabic desserts, you know, they're the very, very, the very sweet ones. They're very drenched. sweet. Yeah, Again, yeah, yeah. it could be, I could have just said the dessert. It's, right. it's nothing against those cultures, of course, but just in terms of the, the food, it, they're drenched in syrup. In, and some of them, some of these desserts... It's almost like they have fur on them. Do you, do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. They, they, I know it's not fur, but it's got the consistency I know, I know of fur. I know what you're talking about. So some yeah. of those desserts, I don't get yeah. it. Yeah. Sorry. Again, I'm, I'm not... These are just honest answers. Have you tried the Israeli Hebrew accent? And if so, why? If not, why not? What's your take on the Israeli Hebrew accent? First of all, I can't really get it. I have a problem with my R's. See, R's. I think it's from my Australian background. Many Australians have this issue that they can't roll their R's. Right. Or maybe I have a speech impediment. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going with the Australian. I'm going to blame it on Australia. And for that reason, I've never really been able to get the accent down. And it's funny because when I speak in Hebrew, the reactions are either, are mostly people will switch to English, even if I'm completely, and in the beginning I liked it. But then the more I've been here, I kind of keep, Struggling yeah, it's like, excuse Hebrew. me, I know Hebrew, Even though, right? Yeah, yeah, sometimes I get a little bit like that. Even <laughs> yeah. though, my, look, my Hebrew for 20 years, it's okay, but, it, you know, it's not, my English is still way better. It's functional and not, not fantastic. Um, so, yeah, I haven't really, no, I, I don't think I'm capable of trying the Israeli accent, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Any pet peeves about life in Israel? Of course. The bureaucracy, the post office. With a startup nation and the post office is a third world. It sure for instance. is. Yeah. I don't know if this has ever come up with other interviews, but the fact that now it's not just the post office, but you're sent 
to regular stores, regular stores are now moonlighting as post offices right. because the post office can't handle everything. I don't know if that's ever sure. come up. No, no one it's else crazy. has talked about that. It's crazy, right? I get mad, you know, go to stock in right. the old Beit Shemesh and they've got like in this big store where they sell all sorts of stuff. At the back, they've got their post office department where this poor kid is dealing with the, you know, the packages. I once picked up a package from an electronics store and, yeah. and the owner said, I make more money from dealing with these packages than I, I do from I the electronics. I think I right? Because yeah. <laughs> I've never seen anyone in that store buy anything. I think they're all here getting their packages. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what brings you to tears in Israel, like tears of joy or pride? When I reflect on my life here and my kids. Knowing what you know now, what might you have done differently in terms of your Aliyah? I think I might have persevered. So I did one month of Ulpan, got married, and then went straight to work. I think right. I should have continued to Ulpan even part-time while I was working because the road towards uh, like learning the language was a lot harder. And even to this day, as I mentioned, my Hebrew is not by any means perfect. I still struggle a bit with some words. And had I had a firmer basis in Hebrew, I think it would have held me in better stead. Right, right. What's been better than you expected here? Better than expected here? I'd have to say the food. Interesting. Because before I came here, again, back to the picture book and the, the sort of uh, basic understanding of what life might be like, it was just about right. falafel and pizza. Right. The stereotype and such a richness because we have so many cultures here you the ethiopian food you got food from the, the whole gamut true of uh culture you know jews from all over the world so the food is just incredible here better than expected <laughs> the, the the fruits and vegetables taste way better than anywhere else in the world that is true that is it's, true it, it really is the land of milk and honey <laughs> it's it is a it's a i would say much more significant benefit than I realized it was going to be. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Now, it's a blessing and a curse. Because as I mentioned, I have to, you know, I never had uh, problems with my weight uh, growing up. I was a very skinny kid. And I, I, oh, I look okay. pretty good now, I think, but that, it's much harder work. Because if I just yeah. eat the malawa and everything I want to, I'm going to No, be... but even that, like the idea of like just biting into a cucumber here versus doing that, like I would never bite into a cucumber in New York. You know, like, well, here's an interesting no thing. Flavor. I never liked salad. Before right. I couldn't eat salad, you know, I was always just meat, have meat with my meat. I mean, I do like meat and I still love meat. It's an Aussie thing. But for the first time in my life, I really enjoy salad. And I yeah. think a lot has to do with the freshness of the vegetables here. Is there anything you thought was going to be easy and actually has been difficult about life in Israel? Wow. Wow. That's a really difficult question. Did I think anything was going to be easy? I think... At the time I made Aliyah, as we mentioned before, was this high-tech bubble. So I think I'd heard lots of things about, oh, you'll get a job easy with your mm. qualifications. And then, so I think in my mind, before I made Aliyah, I would have made Aliyah anyway. But before, I thought it would be easier to get into a job and keep the job. <laughs> but mm. because of the, the timing of my Aliyah, you know, within the first year, I had three jobs. Now, after that year, I had the, the third job lasted with me until two years ago. Yeah, yeah. But I'll, that, that would be my answer, I think. Uh, but it, it sounds weird because actually, when I think about it, my career here was, in a way, easier than I might have expected in, after the initial hiccup. Sure. So there's both sure. sides to that answer, I guess. You've made it pretty clear that you love where you live. 
that Beit Shemesh is a special place for you and yes. uh, you know, that, that this is your home. Uh, is there another place in Israel, a special place that you just love to visit or go to? There are so many. Of course, Jerusalem has its, it's just so unique and special. So I love visiting there, especially the old city, the Kotel. I'm, it's probably a pretty cliched answer. But, but I also love the beach. I love the beaches here. Although I, you know, I don't in general love staying in the sun for too long. Because, you know, I'm, you can see me. I'm pretty white. <laughs> My skin conspires against me. But I, I love the Avira. I don't know. I just love. You know, I, I just love it. Uh, especially at night, visiting the beach when I can't get burnt. Right. Um, every another place. No, there are just so many places. I remember the first time I visited Zichron, Zichron Yaakov. It reminded me very much of Australia in a way. Hmm. With the, the European, it's got a very European kind of market feel. True. It's just so many unique places. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but Jerusalem probably stands out for me. What do you miss most about where you came from? Besides my, my, my mum and my friends, sport. Right. I, I'm such a sport nut. And as I said, I, I still follow the sports. Religious. Have, have you ever where. tried to follow it here? I do. Oh, you, I buy no, no. subscriptions. No, I'm saying, have you ever tried to follow Israeli sports? Oh, a little, a little bit. Um, I mean, you know, when we were in the EuroLeague in Maccabi Tel Aviv, you know, I'd watch that. But not, yeah. not, not religiously. I don't go to the soccer games. I'm not following the, the, the local leagues. I'm about to, Bezrat Hashem, soon go to a Tel Aviv, I think they're called the Tel Aviv Heat. It's a rugby team that I oh, heard okay. about, I blogged about recently. Um, and I think I'm going to visit mainly from people outside of Israel, but uh-huh. to support them. They're in the, at some sort of European rugby league. Oh, okay. So that, that should be interesting. Was Aliyah a light switch kind of moment decision for you, or was it more of a process? Oh, I think from what I've described, it's, it was a process. <laughs> it was a process. Yeah. Is Aliyah for everyone? Wow. I have to give this question thought I mean all of them have to give thought but this especially because it's tough for me to say it's for everyone I believe it's potentially for everyone but I don't want to let's say undermine very true challenges or dismiss very true challenges that might exist for people whether they be financial or family connections to family Let's put it this way. I think if you want it to work, you can make it work. But it's hard for me to say the words, it's not for everyone. It, it hurts me. But I, I don't want to, I said, dismiss those that really, really want to be here and they can't for some reason. I don't want to hurt them with that answer. And when you had been here a year, two years, three years, would you have answered that question the same way? I know, if, like for myself, when I first got here, I was I like... I think maybe in the past, yeah. I had been a bit more gung-ho mm-hmm. and saying everyone should make Aliyah. Right. Maybe a bit of a lack of maturity or maybe a lack of awareness about the real challenges that people face. You know, in the past, I might have said something like, oh, financial? It's actually cheaper to be here, but schooling is so much cheaper. Or Nefesh Benefesh helps you. Why, why are you thinking that way? But uh, I understand the challenges that life can throw your way more now than ever. So let's put it this way. I think it's for everyone, unless these major challenges exist and your only concern is of a financial nature, 
I think it can be for everyone. Meaning, financially, I don't think the financial argument is compelling as it was once. Right, right. Because I think, although salaries, from what I understand, in the States, for example, are higher, the cost of living here, in terms of schooling and things like that, just from what I've heard from my American friends, if you want to live in a dutty community, for instance, in New York, <laughs> it's, it's almost impossible now unless both parents are working. You know, if you want to put your kids in those particular schools, you sure. have to make a lot of sacrifices. If you're going to make a sacrifice, and I don't want to call living in Israel a sacrifice, but you're sacrificing something, whether it be being, having you know, your parents around the, the block or there's a certain level of sacrifice or discomfort, but you, I think you can make it work here. What's your magnet? I'll explain. Uh, we, we all have, well, your refrigerator is pretty clean. I, I, they're all on the top. Uh, okay, I bought so, a new fridge and no, I, I okay. didn't want to spoil its beauty <laughs> with magnets. So the, the whole idea of magnets on the refrigerator with different sayings and, and that kind of thing and, you know, like words of wisdom for life. So what, what does David Lang's magnet say? Be excellent to each other. That's easy. Bill and Ted. No, I'm being serious. I, I really that that those familiar with the movie it's pretty silly, right? I never saw it. Keanu Reeves. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I remember it. But I, I love it. I love the movie, and it's simple. I love the message. It's, it's really actually in a way what the Torah is saying. You know, Hillel said it in a different way when sure. that guy, you know, the standing on the one leg, that, that whole story. Be excellent to each other. Uh, it's simple but powerful. I believe in being excellent to each other. Yeah. David Lang, thank you for returning again to your Aliyah story and uh, wishing you only success going forward. And, and guys, go to IsraeliCool.com. It's a great website um, with fantastic information. It's also kind of entertaining. Anyway, thank anyway, you. Anyway, thank you so much. It was a real honor and privilege.